and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this morning's session of StoryFest. My name's Nicole Aberdee. Today, I'm going to be talking to Rosalie Hamm about her fifth novel, The Dressmaker's Secret, published in 2020 by Picador and the sequel to the number one international bestseller, The Dressmaker, which I'm sure you've all heard of, published in 2000. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Murramurang people of the UN nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Just a little bit of admin. Could everybody switch your phones to silent, please? The social media handle for StoryFest is at StoryFest Inc., just all one word, and the hashtag is hashtag StoryFest 2021. So we're really um, keen to encourage people to, um, to use their social media, so please go crazy with that. Rosie, Rosalie will be available at the end to sign books immediately after our session in the pop-up bookshop, which is on the downstairs level of the uh, centre where we are now. So, Rosalie Hamm was born and raised in Geraldary, New South Wales, with a population of 800, I'm told. She worked in aged care until her first novel, The Dressmaker, about love, hate and haute couture, became a number one bestseller and cult classic, is how I would describe it. That book was shortlisted for the 2001 Christina Stead Prize for Fiction in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. It was published in 14 countries, and as many of you will know, in 2015 it was made into an award-winning film, starring, amongst others, Kate Winslet, Judy Davis, Hugo Weaving and Liam Hemsworth. Rosalie since then has published four more novels, including the one that we're going to be talking about today, and she has sold an absolutely extraordinary 300,000 books. Sorry, 300, yes, 300,000 books here and overseas, which is really extraordinary. She has a BA in education and a Master of Arts in creative writing. When she's not writing up until very recently, she taught literature at Trinity College, University of Melbourne. Rosalie, welcome to StoryFest. Thank you, Nicole. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Now, I'm going to start by asking you the very boring question, what is it? about, because I always think it's really lovely for an audience to hear from a novelist how they would describe their own book. So tell us what The Dressmaker's Secret is about. The Dressmaker's Secret takes up the story of Tilly Dunnage um, three years after she left Dungatar in a blaze of non-glory behind her in her last vengeful act. And I have to admit at this point that The Dressmaker's Secret came out um, during lockdown in Melbourne and so there was almost 12 months have passed by and I haven't actually talked about the book so I 
had to do some homework because I'd forgotten because when you start writing a novel, you have a, well, I do anyway, I had a, this is what I want to say and this is what it's going to be about. And that's something I referred back to. But once the book is out, you go, oh, thank God that's over and move on to the next mm. thing. So I went back to my piece of paper to discover why I wrote The Dressmaker's Secret and I'm about to tell you why. So I wrote it because um, it's about Tilly Dunnage once again confronting her past only to find that she can't proceed unless she confronts herself. Um, I had to kind of, you know, you've got to develop the characters and make them move forward. Um, and so it was about attempting to do that. So Tilly discovers who she really is, what she really wants, what she must do with her life to support the people she's indebted to, to honour the life of her mother, Molly, um, and the lost life of her one true love, Teddy McSwiney, um, whose legacy, which is a secret, now dictates her life. So the dressmaker secret asks, do you dress how you want to seem, no pun intended, or do you exude how you want to be perceived despite your costume, or do you dress as yourself even if it means dressing the way others don't want to see you? Um, so I, in the book I explore the use of costume to convey truth or lies or genuine fiction story for the purpose of finding the truth. And finally, the principal idea that's proposed is that couture makes some people who they're not. And that is ultimately debilitating. So I think mm. that last um, paragraph there with the dot point is probably the thing I clung to all the way through because it kept me anchored in the dressmaker and you I had to remain in the dressmaker in order to go forward in the dressmaker's secret. And we're going to talk a little bit later on about costume. Costume, the power of costume, mm. its power to transform and also its ability to disguise. Mm. Could you just give us a short reading from the book, please, yes. Rosalie? So I've got, um, I'm just going to read one one page basically and this is at the at the start of the dressmaker's secret and Tilly Dunnage is working in a salon in Collins Street in Melbourne not she's not entirely happy um, she knows that she's got a past that she must hide from her present and she has um, secrets of her present life that she must hide from her past but there are people lurking and she senses that around her. She can't actually see them, but she knows that her past will come to get her. And then one day the measurements, 44, 45, 44, arrive on her sketch pad and they say you need to make a dress. Inches, a, that is. Yeah, inches, a sarong dress. And she goes, aha. So <laughs> this is the time, this is the, at the point where she meets the person with that particular physique, which she knows quite well. So that afternoon when Claire arrived on the landing and dis directed Tilly to go downstairs immediately, she replied, I'm going, I'm fixing Mrs. Drum's dress. Valda should go, she's the head of workroom. And Claire says, it's the sarong dress. Tilly felt the knot in the pit of her stomach pull again. Valda asked, is the client displeased? On the contrary, displeased. On the contrary, Claire said, though it's obvious something plain and black would have seen suited her better. What they didn't know was that the client also believed she looked good in a check gingham cowgirl skirt. 
Tilly gathered her tools, squared her shoulders and followed Claire's slender mannequin's physique. The dressmaker stands and the machines passing dreamily. Then alongside Valda's office they went and down the narrow staircase lined with photographs of models in unremarkable garments. They passed Mrs. Flock's bureau and entered the main salon, skirting the gilded imitation chaise lounge and the receptionist's desks, where Claire turned slowly, smiled and pulled the curtain aside. And there, on a small stool in the middle of the fitting room, against a backdrop of creamy draped curtains, stood the pale cylindrical form of Sergeant Farrett. His, <laughs> his stomach straining against the parakeet-coloured dress, and the thick brazier corset straps pinching down on his furry bare shoulders. His makeup was immaculate and his wig understated. He was beaming. Then his expression fell, taking the joy with it. Your hair, he said. He had not seen her for nearly two years and Myrtle Dunnage no longer appeared fragile. Her chin was squarer, she was leaner, harder, beautiful, but still without the glow of joy de vive. Sorry. She ran her fingers through her short, dark crop, much easier, but my hats are all too big now. But it's so unbecoming, said Sergeant Farrett. I'll grow it for you, she said. She knew her short crop marked her as odd in a city full of stiff brown curls and neat buns. And she also knew that her cover was probably about to be blown <laughs> completely. The thread holding her to her bloody past was unbreakable. She circled the sergeant, scrutinising the drape. What do you think of your gown? Oh, it's perfect, he cried. She, look, she said, but you look like a Christian bonbon. A Christmas bonbon, I should say. <laughs> Christian Christmas, but you look that like a Christmas. <laughs> At which point Claire gasps because she doesn't know that they know each other. So we've, they've established their relationship and they've gone back to that same cheeky, perfectly frank relationship where they left off. Rosalie, the dressmaker was such a phenomenal success. You wrote it over 20 years ago. It's been made into this film. It has become the film and the book, really. As I say, I see them as Australian cult classics. Similar, I might say, to films like Muriel's Wedding or Strictly Ballroom. That's what it makes me think of. Why do you think your story touched such a chord in so many people? I think it's familiar. Um, I think the characters are... Um I took the worst aspects from the worst people I'd ever met and applied them to the <laughs> people of Dungatar. And I think there's a great deal of joy and satisfaction of meeting those characters if you've met them in your life or you know about them or you've lived next door to them. So to see them written and go, oh my God, you know, I know that person, it somehow vindicates um, your innermost dark and nasty thoughts about that person to see it on, you know, in black and white on a page. I think that, and I also think um, the whole idea of costume and what you put on in the morning and how you appear, appear in the day, um, the decisions you make when you get up, there's also those common themes of hierarchy um, and competition and jealousy and one-upmanship and vanity and all those things that people are very familiar with. And I also just think that it's just a rollicking tale. Mm. It's just a damn good yarn. Um, How did you feel about being, it being made into a film in 2015? And in particular, not just any film, but a film starring Kate Winslet, yeah. Hugo Weaving, Liam, Wen Liam Hemsworth, mm. Judy Davis. Mm. How did that feel? 
it was pretty surreal. Now, I have to, at this point, point out that the producer of the film is in, in the audience, and we, we are here. Put your hand up, Sue. Yep, are you? Sue's down there. Um, Sue and I grew up in the same small country town, um, and we'll talk about this this evening, um, hopefully, because they're going to screen the film and there'll be a question and answer afterwards. But when Sue found her way to me, um, and it became obvious that she was the right person to make the film. Others had tried and failed. Um, but I knew that Sue would be able to do it because we were born and raised in Geraldry and we can open any gate on any farm on any continent. And we're country girls that get things done. And with it, for a story that where the two main protagonists don't make it to the end, it was going to require someone special. And Sue was that girl. It was an unfolding, gradual series of small bursts of unbelievable joy, if I can put it that way, because we played golf together, Sue and I, and as we were playing golf, she would say things like, Kate Winslet's going to play the oh. lead role. <laughs> okay, so how did you make that happen? That's what we'd all like to know. Um, I think it was trial and error. I think per Firstly, Sue um, asked everybody else in Australia and everybody was busy and then she and Jocelyn just went, okay, let's go for broke, we may <laughs> as well ask Kate Winslet. And then they had to wait a year. But getting, and Kate Winslet said, yes, I'd, I'd like to do uh. it, obviously, at which point Sue put Jocelyn Morehouse, who adapted the book to screen on an aeroplane and the rest um, is history. But I just think it gets back to the fact that You've got to try, and mm -hmm. like um, when Sue took on that film and had to raise all of that money um, to translate those costumes and my ideas and thoughts and that book to the stage, it takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. And so to say, oh, well, let's just try Kate's Winslet, I suppose, you know, um, it just seemed like the ne next natural step to her. However, when you were told that on a golf course, um, and, and The Dressmaker is a, is a book that I wrote as a part of a course, a creative writing course, and I didn't even think that it would get published, let mm -hmm. alone made into a film. And then the right producer came along. It was someone I knew I'd, I'd been to school with. Yeah. Um, and then she said, it's got Kate Winslet. Well, it just kept getting more and more bizarre. Equally with Beautiful was Judy Davis. Yes. I loved Desperately, and then the rest all fell into place. And you've said before that Molly is your favourite character, so you must yeah. have been beside yourself to have Judy Davis bring her perfect. to life. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely perfect. And I liked, I liked, the thing I like about Molly um, and Judy Davis was that Judy Davis clearly enjoyed mm. very much doing. In fact, I think they all enjoyed it enormously. Now, something that everybody here may not know, which is just so lovely, is that you, you had a role as an extra yes. in the film. Yeah. How did that feel? And that was extraordinary. But uh, that was part of the deal. I said to Sue, oh, yeah, you could make my film on the condition that me and my friends and family are <laughs> extras and I can go to every red carpet event on the planet. And she just went, of course you can. Um, so I corralled all of my friends and family and we started the process of looking for um, extras in Geraldry. Sue was very kind wow. about that. Your so hometown. we went to Geraldry, we hired out the, the local um, hospital staff room, we didn't actually hire it. My sister-in-law worked there, she just said, come and do it there. So the Geraldry people, Julie, showed up to audition to be in an extra. And so it was, it was good. I have nephews that were normally tractor drivers and 
nieces that were normally nurses, and they all just went, oh, going to be in a film with Kate Winslet. <laughs> You know, so off we went, and it was now, amazing. If you want to see what Rosalie looks like, Google her name and find her website, and she's got a blog on that, and there's a great photo of you dressed, dressed, in, dressed yeah. the part. Mm. So The Dressmaker was published in 2000. Since then, well, since it, this one was published 2020, 20 years elapsed, and in the meantime, you published three more novels. Why did you decide to write the sequel? Um, it was always in my mind that I should write a sequel, but I didn't. Um, I was afraid of it, I was fearful, because n people weren't going to get the same emotional impact that they were going to get from the dressmaker. Sequels are notoriously um, difficult. They n they're notoriously not as good as the first one, so they say. Yeah. And so there okay. was all of that fear involved with doing it. Um, and I wanted to establish myself as writing something other than this story. I wanted to, you know, try other things and go other places. I had more things to say. And I did that. And then I had nothing to do and nothing to say, so I thought, oh, well, I'll just see what I've got. And I went back to what I had, and I had a lot of notes. I had thousands and thousands and thousands of words of notes, and it was because... Left over from the dressmaker. Or that no, I've just been then. making them along wow. the way because the dressmaker was on the VCE literature yes. list for years and I would go and do stuff. That, that's talks. the um, Victorian equivalent of the HSC, isn't yes, it? Yes, yep. it is. Um, Victoria's Certificate of Education, they call it. And on the literature list, it was one of the books students studied. And I go and give talks to kids. Um, and they're very good. They ask very good questions because I've got to write an essay about this. You know, and so they've got the author in front of them, so they just ask you really penetrating questions, which is sometimes very scary because you go, well, I hadn't thought of that. Or alternately, you can say, that's a good idea, I'm going to steal that. But they had always, one of the questions that was asked all the time is, where is Tilly now? Mm. Uh, and I, I knew that by talking to these school kids that they had endings, that they thought. And what were some of those in. endings? You, you mentioned that in one of your Facebook posts. Yes. Tell us about some of the endings that have been suggested to you over the years. Well, the That's boys... That's a spoiler alert. If you haven't read The Dressmaker itself, this is a spoiler alert, but it, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. It's too late. Yes. It's, it's everybody else has seen it if you haven't seen it. Anyway, what, what happens is, um, what happened was that the boys and there's, in a literature class, there's usually only one boy, and he's, only, he's there under sufferance. And that's the boy that says, mate, I didn't think I was going to survive the, dress about, the book about dressmaking, but it was all right. And the boys go, nah, Tilly Dunnage is in jail, mate. Mm. She deserves to be there. She killed a lot of people. That was bad. Um, but the girls would always say, no, Teddy didn't die. It was just a pretend and he's living in Melbourne and they've run away together. Or, and the girls would say, no, no, that's not what happened. He, but she's in Paris and she's found true love again. And so I had all of these ideas about what would happen. And the McSwineys were only pretending and they all went away together and it's all right. They're living happily. And, and I didn't really for a long time want to destroy mm. those endings or the, that, that story that people held quite closely, but in the end I, I had to write what I thought had happened to Tilly because by that time I was a better writer 
because The Dressmaker was my first novel and I wanted to extend the story and make it better and have Tilly released from whatever mm. it was that everybody thought that she was trapped in now. She had to be stronger. What was the biggest challenge, Rosalie? What to do. Mm. How to make her evolve um, and be a different person because there's the context. It's the 1950s. So it was, a, it was quite rigid. And so how to make um, something exciting and different about a bunch of misfits fit the 1950s wasn't quite so much of a problem because you, you can create a secret life for them and the fear around that, that they would be caught. But it was how Tilly herself internally was going to evolve and change. And also, was she going to find love again? And I mm. said, I don't That's probably the didn't. most difficult well, one, actually. Yeah, because I, I decided that she didn't really need to find love. I thought that she was a true independent woman now. Um, and she had a, a family of sorts and a career and she didn't need to find true passionate love. Um, and then people objected and said, no, <laughs> she has to fall in love again. And so so we won't no, tell you which no. way. We won't tell you what decision you made, no, but they, we were the ch they were the competing ones. They were the ones. That, that was hard. So her internal life and... And we should just set the scene a little bit for people. So this one opens in 1953. Mm. It's two years since Tilly has fled Dungatar. She's now in Melbourne, living in Melbourne, and she's working in a, how would we describe it, a seamstress? T tell us a bit about Substance. where she's working. Yeah. Uh, she's working for um, Madame Flock, and they're in Collins Street, Melbourne, which is, um, was the most fashionable street, part of the, the Melbourne block that people promenaded around for many, many years. But there's the Paris end of Collins Street, which is up um, the eastern end towards Spring Street and Parliament House and all sorts. Of, and so it's a bit special up there. There was Le Louvre. Um, but Salon Mystique is further down the hill and it's Madame Flock in the true um, style of anything to do with hierarchy in any of my stories that she wants to move up. Um, and so she's exploiting Tilly's talents to that end, but claiming them as her own. But what Tilly is, finds she's doing is making the, the same thing she was, she's done always, and that's make um, fashion for people to disguise themselves and their flaws in order that they appear better and there's a flaw in that. It has mm. to do with vanity and how you look on the outside exacerbates your worst aspects. So Tilly finds herself doing that for um, underappreciated um, boss. And they're also being exploited, as of course many of the seamstresses, females in general, were back in those days not being paid enough. We'll come back to that. Mm. So let's talk now about some of these characters. And I think it's a very distinctive part of your writing that you create the most um, vivid, distinctive, unique characters. Quite unforgettable, most of them. And in this book, The Dressmaker's Secret, we've got a mix of the two. We come back, we get um, reappearances from some of the old favourites from Dungatar, and then we get some very interesting new characters. I want to talk a little bit about Tilly, first mm -hmm. of all. And I wonder, she is such a strong, feisty, um, good person, who has suffered so much. Tell us a little bit about her, and I was wondering, is she based on anyone you know? And I know that your mother was a seamstress, and I wondered if there was a little bit of your mother in Tilly. I think there, 
I didn't like to admit it, but I think there is a bit of my mother who, um, like all of the women in that generation, lived lives that were dictated by what was expected of them. And if you rebelled against that, then you were scorned. Um, and I wanted Tilly to be like that. She just quietly, as my mother did and as most of those women did, while their husbands were out at work and earning their living, they got together. Tilly, of course, isn't because she's ostracised, but they found their own way through. Sewing for my mum was an outlet and a mm. creative thing, and she joined things like the CWA and all that kind of stuff, and I think that helped her navigate her the life that she was awarded. Um, so did she have her own business or did she work for someone else? No, she had her own little mm. she had a little sewing machine and I spent a lot of time hol holding the pin tin and hearing things that I shouldn't. Um, but I didn't want Tilly to have that kind of nurturing, supportive. I wanted her to be resilient and find it in herself and uh, that was the legacy that was passed to her through misfortune mm. and through the long-suffering um, trials and tribulations of her mother. Mm. It was her mother's, was Molly's suffering and Molly's actions that finally, at the end of the dressmaker, made Tilly do what she wanted to do and sent her off to Collins Street stronger mm. and able to navigate. So she is more resilient. She's mm. a strong girl. Um, and you ha as I say, you have to be in when the exterior circumstances are against you. You can either crumble or not. Let's talk a bit about now about Sergeant Farrett. Who is he and what is he like? And the, I just have to read, there's a beautiful, I'm kind of answering my own question, but there's a lovely line where you describe him as a man who knew what was important and valued it. A true friend, a man who loved beauty and upheld freedom. Tell us about Sergeant Farrett and where you found the inspiration for him, his character. The thing about Sergeant Farrett and Mae McSwiney and Tilly um, and all of those people is they haven't done anything wrong. No. They're quite right and they're upright and they're mm. correct um, and they're worldly and they see things um, as they really are, but they're again outsiders. So Sergeant Farrett is just as you as you read out, that's the kind of person he is and he's had to live his whole life like that. But in doing so, there's always one person in your life somewhere along the line that will influence you and you can cling on to that um, and do well in the world or believe your own inner truth. And for Sergeant Farrad, I think it was Miss Peachy next door. Mm. Um, Miss Peachy lived mm. next door to Sergeant Farrad when he, his mother was a milliner. Mm. And he, he moved away because he didn't want to embarrass his mother or ruin her business with his habit of dressing exotically but Miss Peachy lived next door and she lived truthfully and she let him play dress-ups and do things like that so I think because Miss Peachy indulged his true passions and it mm. made it acceptable he was able to go on and know the truth and be the truth and not be entirely corrupted by the mm. police or the welfare department or any of those things because Sergeant Farrett would have been accused mm. of homosexuality, which he's, he's which was illegal in 1953. It was illegal yes, in Victoria. Yes, and it was in 1949. They only lifted the um, 
you could hang. The de- yeah, I've yeah. you, you um, include a reference that the, the death penalty for yes. being homosexual. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. 1949. Yep. Mm. And so this was 19, this book set in 1953. Yes, and so, and so there was, and those things were, so to find your way through that kind of threat, um, and and I, even in my memory of growing up, there's a whole issue with it, the welfare department. I remember as a kid, if you did the wrong thing, people would say you'll be sent to the reformatory. Mm-hmm. So we kind of lived in fear of that, and that's how Sergeant Parrott lived his life. Yet he turned out to be true, right, and correct. And um, as I say, we're not going to give anything away about the plot of this book, but what I will say is that there is a welfare officer who plays quite a big role in it. Mm. What's he like and where did he come from? Oh, well, he's the dastardly, <laughs> he's the villain. dastardly <laughs> villain. And, of course, he has his own... He hasn't come to terms mm. with his own flaws and he has many flaws and they're quite lewd and corrupt and, and terrible, but because he is oppressed and has to keep this a secret and um, you know, d- doesn't want anybody to know what the, these flaws are, um, they fester inside him and make him a bad person. Whereas Sergeant Farrett and everybody else has owned theirs and made them their own and lived truthfully and honest- honestly and he's succumbed to the pressures of the time and it's made him a bad person. Just on that point about secrets, the book's called The Dressmaker's Secret and that's the key, but other people in this this one have secrets as well mm. how much more difficult is it to keep a secret in a country town than it is to keep a secret in <laughs> Melbourne for example um, you can't uh, to my experience you actually can't keep a secret in a small country town because you're a very visible presence in a small country town and people can read you and they know what you're doing the difference is that they will not say anything about that secret because you will say something about their secret. <laughs> and that's what keeps the equilibrium. So there's a kind of duality in the truth and there's a way of navigating the, the main street on the Saturday morning that is all polite and cordial, um, but it's also quite fearful. So secrets can be a powerful weapon and also your greatest weakness at the same time. Yeah. I mean, th- I think you've hinted at this, but as the dressmaker's daughter pinning those hems with all sorts of people coming in out those doors, you must have heard quite a lot of those secrets, I imagine. Absolutely, but I knew that. Is I it could a bit like never... the hairdresser? Do people oh, talk yeah. to a dressmaker in the way they do to a hairdresser? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that one line that in the dressmaker, where um, I think Marigold says, "I need to look better than Elspeth." I remember hearing. <laughs> I remember hearing that. I remember because there was a uh. Catholic ball, um, uh. and there were some people, you know, coming to get dresses and what's Mrs. So-and-so wearing? And I'd like, she always looks better. I'm not, I want to look better than her and all yeah, that. That's a cla- yeah, that was a classic, that line. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some of the new characters then. One of my favourites in this book, and I'm wondering if she was maybe your favourite as well, is Julie. Oh, yes. Who is she and what's she like? Um, Julie is a cord waner. I think She's she was my favourite, actually, apart from Tilly. Sorry? I think she was my favourite, apart yes. from Tilly. Yeah, no, I love Julie too. And Julie is... Um, a person that develops a very strong connection with Sergeant Farrett and it happens in that best cliche way across a crowded room and they symbolically, because she, Julie, is a shoemaker or a cord waner and makes beautiful shoes, Sergeant Farrett tries on her shoes and his feet slip comfortably and they're warm and they fit perfectly. So she's got big feet, she's obviously. Got, she's a big, <laughs> strong girl with yeah. fabulous hands because mm. she works with leather. Um, and she's 
yeah, she's soft, but she's firm, and they, they, they kind of share the passion for what they do for dressing. Like they sit up together and they um, read magazines, fashion magazines, and they discuss those things. Um, and she's more interested in the leather work and exploring the history of shoes, and he's more interested in how they look and what they would go with. And they therefore make a perfect couple. But I loved her because she was a character that wasn't traditionally petite, beautiful no. and lovely like everybody else in the book with gorgeous little 22-inch waists and that people had in the 1950s. She was a thumping girl. Yeah. And um, Sergeant Farrett was shorter than her, but it was a true connection and a true wonderful thing. So I loved making her beautiful. Yeah, she, she's a fabulous character. In fact, as you're talking, it reminds me of something that um, I read that you talked about once. Your books, both of them, are very visual. The way you describe mm. these characters and every intricacy of what they wear and you describe backgrounds and, and things. And I read somewhere something like you said that you almost see the scenes in your head mm. as you're writing it. You said you're a very visual person. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? It's the way, like, when um, Sergeant Farrett first meets Julie, it's what he sees mm. and what it is about her that he finds appealing, whereas the reader reading would go, oh, she sounds like a horse. But it's not. It's what he sees. Yeah. And so there's a way of describing things and making them true to life and real to life so that people can go, yeah, I get that. But at the same time, they're making an opinion themselves about whether or not they would like that or not but they're engaging in the fantasy that it's a beautiful and wonderful thing and going no it's not really this is quite funny or this is quite weird so there's a way of manipulating people by showing them something and describing it beautifully but undermining it because they've got a different opinion about the whole thing I quite I just quite like that and also how people appear um, is how they they want to be seen that day and it says a lot about whether they care about what they look like that particular day or what they want to achieve that particular day so that plays a big part in it so you can make up your mind about them and their emotional state that day and also we learnt at creative writing school that you have to create a whole world with everything in it the sun the moon the stars the trees, the fences, and people write mm. books and you don't, they don't describe the setting very much at all, but I love to set yeah. people so that when you snuggle into the, your reading spot with your book, you can put yourself there. Um, I just think it has a great emotional impact. I have to say, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, I do see a film of the dress, but you don't, don't give anything away, <laughs> I, I don't have any information, but mm. I, I see a film of the dressmaker's secret and I'm wondering as we're talking, who would play Sergeant Farrett and who would play Julie? Absolutely no idea, no. and I wouldn't ever <laughs> speculate. No, because what is in my mind mm. is not um, how a producer or a screenwriter or a casting agent would see it, and they would know. Because when when we look at actors on the stage, they're acting a role. I don't know what they're really like, and what they can convey. Where that they do, and other people know. So uh, you hear all sorts of things and about who should play roles, but. You would love that if Hugo Weaving came back, of course, but he's probably moved on to greater yeah. and better things. Yes. If there ever were to be a, any kind of 
sequel to the, the yes. film, but it's entirely out of my hands. Of course, I see myself in the role of Julie, oh. but, <laughs> you know. Ah, that's lovely. Yeah, but, of course. I don't think you're quite physically no. big and physically imposing enough, no, but that's interesting. So. And you I wear nice shoes. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about now some of the Dungata characters mm. who appear in this novel. Um, again, no spoilers, but just, you know, you won't be surprised to hear that there are, well, almost most of the Dungatar characters do appear at various stages. In particular, we've got Marigold, we've got Beulah, we've got Gertrude, we've mm -hmm. got Elspeth. How did you, you, I'm sure you've been asked this before talking about the first book, but it was, I just found it really fascinating. Again, they're just such distinctive characters. And I wondered, given what your background was, how you came up, you've given us a bit of a hint, I suppose, by what you said earlier, but how you came up with those characters, there were two things that occurred to me. One, that you were born and raised in a small country town, mm. and two, that you'd worked in aged care. Mm. So do you want to talk a little bit about how your life experiences um, helped you to create those extraordinary, memorable, distinctive characters? You know, the, uh, uh, those two things, the small country town, travel, and in the, in working in aged care for many, many years, but but the trick with creating characters is just to take the the weird bit from someone and build someone around that that will carry your theme or your idea and be entertaining. But everybody is weird. <laughs> People are weird, and they and she's we looking get, at you. <laughs> you get so accustomed to them. So what is weird in one place um, is not weird in another. Like it's not weird at home. It's not weird around you. But if you take it out of context and take it somewhere mm. else, then it is weird. So it's taking those things and just exacerbating them. But you also have to make those things fond and likable, mm -hmm. even when they're dastardly mm. and horrible. And that comes from the small community because even the most dreadful person in the community, if their house burns down, the town will come and rebuild their house and give them sheets and clothes and look after them and all those sorts of things. So you see that there is a tolerance and there must be something about that person that people like or something within people that is fond and lovely. So it's tapping into those things and adding that to the, to the weirdness. But, you know, working in aged care, people have um, varying degrees of dementia and or altered states from medications or dehydration or pain or whatever and they just say really strange and wonderful things and when I used to go to the nursing home where I worked for many years there was a kind of a thing when you stripped stepped over the threshold it was like walking into a building full of people on LSD mm. and it was you know um, it's, and you enter there reality so if mm. a, a patient came in and said look I'm looking for my dragon I've lost it somewhere you would go hang on I'll have a look and open the cupboards and say look it's not here I'm sorry why don't you try the laundry and send them down the road and I just found myself doing that and uh, it's not until you get home and think about your day that you realize how odd it was. Mm. Let's talk now about one of the the big themes of this book, The Dressmaker's Secret, and that's this idea of the past colliding with the present. Mm. So Tilly here, as, as we've said, has run away to Melbourne. She's trying to escape her past, really, but she still dreams about it a lot. And she at various times in the early stages saying she feels that her past is about to collide with the present and determine her future. 
And when Marigold and Beulah show up in Melbourne, she feels like her past has come for her and she feels very afraid. There's an old friend of hers who turns up in this book called Arlen and she's saying something like that to him to the effect of, I'm worried that my past is catching up with me. And he says, your, pa your past is the foundation of your life. You have to keep referring to it so that you can grow from it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that's sort of one of the key themes of this book, Rosalie, and if that's something that Tilly has to learn mm -hmm. to embrace her past. Yeah, she does. She has to confront herself, um, find out what it is in herself that she wants to be. And also there's a, another, um, it has to do with costume too, in order to create costume as opposed to couture, um, you have to kind of recognise what it is that you are trying to create in that costume and to recognise that you have to find it in yourself. So Tilly has to do that. So she has to, um, there's a parallel between deciding what she's going to do with her skills and her talent and deciding what she's going to do as a person. And it's Arlen that makes that statement where she goes, all right, I'll have to go rummaging around inside of myself to find out what I really want to do. And what she does is she realises that everything that she has done up until that point has to, had to do with artifice, uh, with creating things that they were not and to, to make other people look like something that they are not. And that in some way has created in her someone that she is not. And she decides that she will then now do something useful. So she can't do anything except seamstressing. So it's, she has to then decide how she's going to use that talent and put it to good effect. Not evil. Yeah, not evil. <laughs> yeah. And, to, and to make people appear in clothing that is practical and sensible and useful, yet stylish. So it still makes them feel better, and it, but at the same time it's um, practical. So she comes up with an idea for a whole line of basically office wear. But Sergeant Farrett, being Sergeant Farrett, who goes into business more or less with her, keeps the theatrical yeah. side of things, which has to do with theatre costume, and they eschew couture altogether. Yes. Can mm. I take you back to something you said? The distinction wasn't clear to me, and I'd like to, you, you made a diff you drew a distinction between costume and couture, mm. and I think you make that point in the book as well, as you say, when they talk about selling that business. Just talk a little bit about the difference between costume and couture. Um, she has a friend, Nita, and Nita is an actress, and she, uh, she needs to make costumes for Nita, and this is where, uh, to make costumes for Nita, she has to find in herself what it is that Nita requires, or Nita's character requires, in order that Nita dress in the costume and become the, the character. character. So costume is about disguise and being someone you're, you're not, uh, couture is, I think, possibly about maximising the most of what you are, but it is artifice as well, where, and same, same with fashion. So that is why she went to kind of office wear, yeah. street wear, because people were being themselves, but it was sensible and practical that they looked good. But there's something that's very hard to kind of articulate at this precise moment about the artifice of costume for theatre, and getting people to engage in the theatre and believe it, because in fiction there is truth, and there is something in costume or couture that, that is art of used as disguise. Yeah, that uses a disguise to disguise who you really are. So that in real life there's fiction, 
Yes, yeah. but it's not the truth. So Whereas the costume sorry. for theatre is the truth. So there are some lovely quotes that I just picked out that I wanted you to talk about where you've got Tilly reflecting on this, how what she wants to do something different in the future. And she says something at one stage that ties in with what you've just said, that she says something like she wants to dress people so that their clothing reflects who they really are mm. um, at their best. And she contrasts that with what she's done in the past, where she's, she feels quite bad about how she made these beautiful dresses, this haute couture for the women of Dungatar. Mm. And she says, or she's reflecting, that her beautiful clothes had made them even more vain, more competitive and greedy. And at one stage she says, they used the art and beauty of my dresses against each other and against me. Mm. And they used my couture as a weapon to bolster the cruelest of impulses. I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you meant by that. Um, that just gets done back it a little bit, but yeah. yeah it, uh, it just gets back to... Um the costume as a disguise mm. to disguise physical flaws but it enhances your sense of vanity mm. and in that small country town where everybody had a secret and they were hiding it and they were all fearful um, and oppressed and then they suddenly they were liberated by looking good and feeling good and um, the hierarchy was under threat um, when everybody started to look good and, and mm. it was just the vanity and the competition and wanting to look better than everybody and have nicer clothes mm. that ultimately brought everybody un, unstitched and that, that's what drove Tilly and Teddy to the silo because she looked better than any of them and they didn't want her to win Belle of the Ball and yes. so they repelled her. It's all very well to have someone make you look good but if they're going to rock yeah. up and look better than you then uh, you know no good but and I Tilly was conscious of that wasn't she she was yes. saying I, I better not come with you that they, they don't want to see me there yeah. they're not going to want to see me looking a mm. million dollars yeah but somewhere underneath all of that is that the, the action of the people themselves it's what they wanted to do it's what they they brought themselves unstitched to use that overused um, cliche. They wanted her to make those things and, the, and of course the ultimate expression of that was Macbeth, uh, the play about vaulting ambition. And so Tilly knew all that and wanted to move away from it all. Uh, just on that subject of disguise, there's a really interesting sort of paradox, isn't there? Because one of the, and I, I'm really not giving anything away because I'm mm. assuming you've all read The Dressmaker, but one of the most genuine, authentic, absolutely truly good characters is Sergeant Barrett, mm. and the way that he reveals his true self is by dressing in women's clothes. Yes. So that's a really an interesting paradox, isn't it? But he was only, yes, and the, it's the same with all the people at the Hippocampus Club. Mm. They go. Oh, tell us the about. Okay, tell everyone about the Hippocampus Club, which is in this book. The Hippocampus Club. It's named after a seahorse because seahorses are creatures that the males um, give birth to the babies and nurture the babies. Um, and so it's a, a club, a secret club in Melbourne in 1953, so it's a very dangerous place and it's where people who wear a costume in the day as a judge or a policeman or an office worker or a housewife or a dad or a businessman, that's their costume for the day, that's how they want the world to see them. But they come to the Hippocampus Club to wear frocks or dresses or... Um, to reveal their true reveal self, self and right? be themselves, yeah. be amongst like-minded people. Mm. So they're kind of a family, and it's a, a club where they're singing and dancing. Was and there a real hippocampus club, or did you make this up? There was a club called the Seahorse Club, but oh, right. it didn't. Uh, I think it started in the 1960s or late 60s, early 70s, and I don't know if it still exists. 
But if there was anything that like that around in the 1950s, it certainly wasn't in my research. But um, there has to have been, mm. you know, there must have been. Mm. Because to give people, those people an outlet. Yeah, people need to be themselves. So I just created the Hippocampus Club and it was actually based on um, a place that I staggered into in Brooklyn, in New York. I got lost in the back blocks of Brooklyn and there was just these wide open expanses of decrepit houses and I was walking along the street with my husband and we saw a sign that said beer and fish bait and we kind of went, let's go there. <laughs> that looks like a good place. So we walked off the streets of um, Brooklyn we stepped into a bar and there were bar flies. There were people that had been sitting there f since, I don't know, 1913, I don't know, they were sitting there. But it was a fishing place, but it was a bar. And so the ceiling had the bottoms of ducks and boats and it had fishing lines coming down with hooks and everything had to do with the nautical theme. And we just staggered in and said, we're lost. And to cut a quite a long story short, the barman said to us, I came here 25 years ago for two weeks and I'm still here. And he <laughs> said, don't go out of New York. Everybody's weird beyond New York. Stay in New York. And this is, I'm sitting in this bar full of weird people. And then they sorted, there was only six people in there and they sorted our change for us and they drew us a map. And then the bus stop was across the street and they ended up walking us out and putting us on the bus. Mm -hmm. And as we drove away, they were waving <laughs> to us. And it looked like the first time they'd actually been in sunlight for a very long time. And I just, we, it, my husband and I just looked at each other and went, well, I won't tell you what we said. We, and it was just <laughs> one of the most, out of all the things that could happen in Brooklyn and New York, that was probably the highlight, that little encounter. And the least predictable. Yes, <laughs> so I wanted the Hippocampus Club to be like that, where those people were completely natural. Those bar people were at home. Yeah. That's where they spent their days, and I wouldn't be surprised if they slept upstairs somewhere. Rosalie, in The Dressmaker, as you mentioned, the people of Dungatar end up self-destructing as they come together to put on a production of Macbeth. Mm. In The Dressmaker's Secret, they're preparing for King Lear. It occurred to me, as I was reading these books together, well, my question is, to what extent are both of these books just good old-fashioned Shakespearean morality plays? Yeah, the battle are. between good and evil. So, you know, that's what you've got in Macbeth and King Lear. Here we've got beautiful good characters like Tilly and Sergeant Farrell and Julie battling the evil ones who, who are, you know, riven by greed, snobbery, bigotry. Is this a morality tale? Yep, it is. Um, and I, I really enjoy it because they're appalling. They don't know anything about Shakespeare and they don't understand that what they're doing is a true reflection of themselves and they're blithely and they change the words yeah. to suit themselves and the pronunciations and you know meld some of the characters together and they do everything completely wrong with with absolutely no idea and I just think it's a delightful thing for people to read at, at how badly they're stuffing it up. But the, in, the, in their case they didn't they didn't see the truth. They couldn't see what was false um, and it was themselves. And they believed in the corrupt and evil daughters, I suppose the equivalent is Gonorrhea and Regan. Yeah. Um, 
and the characters that play those roles reflect them directly, yes. the Dungatarians that play them. So the Dungatarians didn't, didn't see the irony of it, and the irony of it is, is the, the second book is basically the same as the first book. They haven't changed, mm. and they just don't mm. see it coming, and it's blaringly obvious, but it, like King Lear, it's their own obstinance mm. that refuses, and there's set ways and entrenched ideas and moral moralities that are so wrong that don't warn them about the impending doom and it, it's enormously mm. satisfying <laughs> to write the ending of that book. That seems like a great time to open this up to questions. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity for those of you that have seen or read The Dressmaker, read The Dressmaker's Secret, to take the opportunity to ask this fabulous author about them. Maybe you can suggest some other alternative endings to The Dressmaker <laughs> or um, Maybe you can suggest to Rosalie what she might want to write next, but mm. there's a roving microphone, so if you want to ask a question, if you could put your hand up. Yes, there's a lady here. That's great, because we are recording all of this, so we want to be able to hear the questions. Um, I like to say that I write until I don't feel guilty anymore, <laughs> until I've given myself permission, okay, you've done enough, you can go now. And of course, I never leave until I know what's going to happen next. But it, de it depends on what's happening in your day. But the trick is to be disciplined and do at least X amount of words or X amount of hours a day. And uh, I think without interruption that probably takes on average for writers about three years possibly to work on a novel from the first draft to the end draft and then of course is that before you get it to the publisher yes then the next then there's another 18 months then really. there's another 18 months where they say that's gorgeous now cut <laughs> change 40, it words, <laughs> cut 40,000 words or something like that so but it all depends I mean there are authors that I kind of average every five years um, but there are some authors that like Joyce Carol Oates for one who mm. puts one out every six She's weeks. Extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. Any other questions? I've got some more if you don't have any, but I, you've heard enough from me. Urge you to take the opportunity now to ask Rosalie what you've always wanted to ask her. Okay. You can ask me. I've yeah. got more. Yep. Something that you've said, um, one of the features of your writing that you talk about is I've noticed it a few times, the clash of comedy and tragedy, which mm. results in irony. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it works. It's a literary device. It just makes it memorable. And it kind of alleviates the pain of it as well. So you get taught a lesson, but there's also something extra. There's an irony that you can cling to um, as a bit of a salve for what's happened. But And I don't know why I write like that. I think it's to do with being born and raised in a small country town in a rural landscape where you need to make the best of the worst situation. Um, and when there's been a bushfire and you've lost your home and all of your stock and your machinery and your wool shed, you know, there's a way of saying, well, that wasn't a very good day. And it's a very familiar it's very Australian thing, isn't it that's very Australian thing. that understatement yeah and I, I, I quite like doing that the trick is to get if that's going to be translated to film you've got to find the right 
producer. And the other thing is that often people will read my books and not see that it's irony mm. and I'll get a letter saying you are a mean and nasty woman why it's wrong with you you need to go oh, miss the point but yeah another thing I wanted to ask you about was your research so you something that you touched on um there's a, that I, I thought was really interesting there is a bit of politics in this book mm. because Tilly and the other seamstress is working for Mrs or Madame as she prefers to call Flock are all being terribly underpaid, they're being exploited, they're not being paid overtime. And we see Tilly really challenging this, and Tilly's speaking to a journalist and urging him, I suppose it was then, to write um, about how the union should take this up and should agitate for better working conditions. And I wondered if how much research went around that, Rosalie. Is that something that was being talked about in the early 1950s? Was there that sort of mm. agitating going on by peop people in the clothing industry? Yes, there was. There was heaps. Um, it was very understated and it started, um, um, it, it sort of ramped up after the war when the post office women were outed, when the, the men came back from the Second World War. And, um, but it, it had started before that. And this is where Tilly comes up against herself as well because she knows she can't agitate because by agitating mm. she just causes trouble and she doesn't want to do that so she can't do it until she's absolutely secure and in as she did in the dressmaker she kind of the conscience of the people around her gets the better of them and they actually act for themselves so she's a bit of a conduit like that she kind of puts herself in a situation where other people do what they should do because she does by example rather than agitation these days or straight out revenge. But I did an awful lot of inter, um, um, research into the political situation at the time and the strikes and the seamstresses demanding So where do you find pain. that material? Do you go to libraries? Libraries. Yeah. yeah, and I did a lot. But then, <laughs> then of course, I wrote it all in and it went off to the, the publishers and they said, no, there's too many stories. Mm. You've got too many plot lines. You have mm. to cut all of that research. And okay. so um, I kind of had to get rid of a lot of it. And then you're... you're I did wonder about that because it, it, it does crop up a few times and I was actually thinking, I'd like to know a bit more about that. Yeah, and, and I would have liked to have written a whole lot more, but they, they said, no, it slows the pace. You know mm. how they say Follows those the narrative's got to keep moving. You have to make up yeah. your own mind about it. But um, I've kept it all just in case. <laughs> I don't know. And I sort of, it's in a special file somewhere, all my research about it, you know. And it's still going on today, too. We're still demanding equal pay, aren't we? Yeah. Equal everything. Mm. So we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes. I'll just throw it to the audience one more time. Does anyone have any questions that they'd like to ask Rosalie? All right, well then I would like to take the opportunity on all of our behalfs to thank, Ro thank Rosalie, thank first you. of all, for writing these books, yep. to tell you that she will be downstairs signing these books in the bookshop downstairs, and to thank all of you for coming. Thank you, Nicole. It was excellent. Excellent. Loved it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.